The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's always hard to cut off all that <coughs> wonderful social energy. But uh, just in case you don't know, the community room is almost always available right after these programs on Sunday, and sometimes folks bring snacks, or there's always tea, hot tea there, so feel free to stay around for that if you'd like. And we've been uh, moving on these Sunday morning sessions, at least the ones that I've been leading lately, moving through these talks or topics, really, from the Buddhist teachings on emptiness. So some of the more subtle teachings from the Buddha. But the interesting thing about the Buddha's approach and his offering, you know, what he had come to understand studying his own mind, it's he has a very pragmatic, down-to-earth approach. And uh, especially these early teachings of the Buddha, this common ground comes out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition, which sometimes these days is called early Buddhism. And uh, in later schools, you know, and including in Theravada Buddhism, you know, things keep developing. It doesn't, it's not like teachings stop, right? There's always rifts on the teachings and changes made to the teachings. So part of the culture of, of places like Common Ground is trying as best, as imperfectly as it is, trying to get a sense of what sort of awakening did this human being have way back 2,500 years ago and how might that be relevant to this heart and mind. And so we're talking about something very human, something very here and now. But just because it's really down to earth doesn't mean it isn't sort of out of the box. Because a lot of who we are and how we are right now, we're just sort of caught in the habits of the mind. And those habits can be quite limiting in ways that we don't understand because our mind, the experience of the mind, is limited by sort of the constructions coming out of our culture and all the conditioning forces on our mind, right? And that's all our mind knows. It only knows this limited way of operating. And that limited way of operating, when we take our first looks around, we see, boy, there's a lot of greed, a lot of fear, a lot of you know, attachment, a lot of dependence on distraction and denial and like, I don't really want to go there. don't really want to open that up and look into that, right? Which should, if we get that far, where we realize how much of the operation of our heart and mind is being governed or controlled by these forces of in Buddhism, the short way of saying it is greed, anger, and delusion. But we have to understand that greed has many different manifestations. Aversion or anger, hatred has many different expressions. Delusion, distraction, denial, many different. But all of them are constricting, you know, and subjectively experience as heavy or hard to bear. And, unfortunately, when we're caught in those ways of being, we tend to perpetuate it or cause other minds, the folks around us, right? We cause other 
reverberations of suffering. And it goes around and around and around. And we get a world like we have where there's a lot of oppression, injustice, a lot of suffering, a lot of meanness, a lot of greed, and a lot of distraction, disconnection. And that's so unpleasant, all of that, that it makes our mind and our way of being even more dependent on distraction. Because to wake up means we begin to feel what's here to feel and see what's here to see. And it's often initially very unpleasant, that sort of... as, As any real healing generally requires some, you know painful, difficult experience, right? the healing crisis. I often feel this way, even, and I don't know how much just sort of I'm making this up, but even with just an ordinary cold or the flu or something like that, when we're really, the mind, the head rather, is kind of clogged or the lungs clogged or the body without energy, and it seems, you know, the more I've, I've brought my practice to these experiences of being sick now for many years, I mean, the, the first appro- approach is like, this can't be happening. I'm too busy to be sick, right? And then we kind of freak out and buy every conceivable supplement and pour salt water in our nose. And, you know, we do all these sort of things. But at some point, you know, depending on the particular cold, we get, you know, we have to submit, you know, and then we just don't want to be there. Like we know it's going to go away or we suspect that it will go away. And then, you know, the next sort of tactic is to get a lot of good videos and whatever. And it's like, or sleep a lot. None of that is bad. I'm not, you know, negative about any of that. But it's just the general idea is like, I'm just going to bear with this until it goes away. But I I notice, especially for those colds that linger, that there's some deeper experience of submission, of surrender, of really like just noticing in the most straightforward way without any denial what what does it feel like? What's the actual experience happening? And so this... uh, this is also true in, in terms of getting to know the nature of the mind. It's not an e- easy thing to do. There will be a lot of pushback. Almost seems like that pushback is me, my own voice of wisdom saying, you don't really want to do this. This is stupid. So the pushback may arise as a kind of doubt that seems to be really intelligent, like this is kind of stupid being aware of the space of the mind, you know, there's a lot to be done in life. What are you doing, right? I mean, d- doesn't, don't those thoughts arise for us at times? Or other things, like that more receptive mode, you know, just sort of sitting. I mean, we can get into sort of mental training, like now there's like all these online things that train your mind, and a lot of what goes for Buddhism these days, can sort of fall under that general category of becoming some kind of superstar awareness person <laughs> where you have more resilience. And, you know, now these days it's 
these products are being sold to corporations and the Pentagon and basic. And I'm not saying there's a lot of uh, usefulness in some of these mental trainings, but it's still in the realm of somebody wanting to be immune to the reality of life, that things come and go, that no one's in control, right? Vulnerability, uncertainty, groundlessness, these sort of, you know, basic truths that human beings have been running from, denying, hiding from since day one. And like I said at the beginning, Buddhism, the teachings from this person, it's really straightforward. It's like, I mean, the starting point is like, you know, it's pretty relevant, you know, talking to us, people like us, it's pretty relevant to recognize how much of my life has been a running. As if I know where I'm going, right? It's like, got to do something. I mean, that we're pretty clear about, but we haven't bothered to sort of, in a more receptive, open and unentangled, disentangled way, to take a look at what's going on. What is the nature of this thing I call me, this body-mind thing here, what is its nature so that before just running to do something, I might have a clearer sense of what might actually be helpful. So that primary research, but done in a subjective way. It's not about reading a book or even finding a wise person. Although we do need the wise <laughs> the wisdom that says, take your mind and look at the most relevant thing. There is this activity of mind right here, this subjective experience right here. And the, according to these wise folks before us, the basic problems of human beings and their suffering is that human beings have arrogantly assumed they know what to do about their suffering and haven't bothered to take a closer look at what the experience of the heart what the experience of the mind is, directly, subjectively, right here. This experience of being a human being. I'm pretty sure I need some entertainment or some interesting food to eat for lunch. We're pretty sure I need this or need that or need to get rid of, and then I'll be happy, and then I'll be safer or better or something like that. And it never occurs to us to, okay, to really get a sense of what's happening in this space I call me, my life, my moment, I need to learn to be aware in a way that di- that is, to some degree at least, disentangled, you know, not attached. So the very definition of mindful awareness is this non-attached knowing. Like I was saying, you know, there are many approaches, but the approach this morning in the guided meditation is, you know, to use things like being aware of hearing and then as a jumping off point to realize, oh yeah, the hearing is happening here and now. Just for the wisdom in the mind to be curious about what we call the present moment, the space of the present moment or the Subjectively speaking, it's like a space in which sounds are heard, in which 
the space in which sensations are felt and thoughts are seen and emotions are felt and seeing is known. And, and see, that sense of the space of here and now allows the mind to have this disentangled, unentangled presence. Right? So there's the activity of sensations moving and sights moving and sounds moving and sensations moving. But the mind is learning to rest. This isn't the end of practice, but there's a lot of freedom just in getting this, beginning to be able to hang out in this place. Like even now, it doesn't like have to be in a meditation period. Right? Even now listening to someone talk, right, isn't there a way that in a sense, a way to rest and just let the hearing of my voice and the mind that's comprehending the words to whatever degree and the seeing if your eyes are open and the sensing of sensation. Right? Does there, does there need to be somebody doing all that or is that just that sensitivity, that knowing just happening? And where is that all happening anyway? It's happening here and now. And that is very subtle. The space of here and now, the space of the mind, the space of the heart, the space of the present moment. Right? Those are words. But what they point to is something that's subtle. And because it's subtle, we tend not to value it. We tend not to recognize it. And what the Buddha is saying if you train your mind to be interested in that, your relationship, the mind's relationship to what we call that activity of seeing and hearing and thinking and sensing sensations, you know, whatever is in motion, all of what we normally call me or my life, that's all that activity. But now we've trained the mind to be curious about the space. And so the relationship to all that activity can change from attachment to non-attachment, from uh, the uh, relationship being governed by greed, anger, and delusion to the way the mind relates to the activity of life as non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion. Right? And when we get moments where that's has some momentum, then we say that's an insight, right? The mind, it's like a mystical experience because it's out of the box. Even though it's right here and now, it took no special ingredients. You don't need to be in a Buddhist meditation retreat or even in a meditation period or in a special place. You don't have to wear a special hat or have a special meditation shawl. You don't need anything except to be curious about the mind with some persistence. We need persistence because the force of habit will take the mind and it will get entangled in particular objects of experience, thoughts that are being known or sensations that are being felt. right? And then we think about that experience and in a sense, like what we say now is you're lost, we're lost in thought. The mind is absorbed in a little bubble 
of its own meaning it's constructed about some experience that it had. And then every thought it has about that experience is the next experience that the next mind moment does a riff on. And then it does a riff on that and a riff on that. And that whole ongoing process in Buddhism we call samsara. You probably have heard. Now there, I think, are even perfumes called samsara, (laughs) which is one of those great ironies in life because samsara is like how suffering continues on and on and on. (laughs) But (laughs) there, there are also things like, I think there's, is it perfume or something called crave or craving or something like that? So it's just interesting how, you know, how we use these words, which, you know, just are at the root of why our heart feels so burdened, and yet we're attracted to them. I mean, we kind of know that. It's like, there's that line, Lord, please make me chaste, but not yet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've got some wild oats to sow, right? It's like, yeah, I want my I want my suffering. But at some point, human beings start to grow a little disenchanted. Like, well, maybe I don't want my suffering anymore. Maybe I'm willing to go back to this more primal research. I have this heart and mind. I have this life. I have this. Let me get interested in this. And now, you know, like I've been practicing for a while, so whenever I, you know, get that cue from my own wisdom, like, what about this? What about here and now? Right? My mind immediately recognizes space. And that space is always there. It's like the mind remembering the possibility of non-attachment. Because without that, you'll notice, and like I have many, many times, you'll notice when you sort of drop into the present moment, the first thing you're going to notice is the mind hungry for something to attach to, something to engage with attachment, something to like or something to not like. Right? So when you notice that, that's the opposite of what we're looking for. But it's really good to notice that because what notices that? Only that wisdom, that space, of non-attachment can notice attachment. So noticing aversion, noticing fear, noticing anxiety, noticing a sense of neediness, of wanting comfort or whatever it is, then, then instead of taking the bait and getting into that proliferation, the cycles of samsara, you can be, get, be interested in the space in which this is being known the space of wisdom in which this is being known, the space of kindness or non-judgment in which this is being known. See, it's just a turning about what the mind is interested in. We think somehow wrongly, we think it's skillful to be interested in what I don't like and what I like because we think we'll be wise enough not to get involved in a way that causes suffering. But we always end up causing suffering. Because taking anger personally is going in the direction of suffering. Taking greed personally. The only way to be skillful with greed is to be aware 
This is something being known here and now. So even being against greed isn't skillful, or being against anger isn't skillful. Being interested in it is skillful. But needing to control it, or needing to get rid of it, or fix it, or then we're already setting ourselves up, right? Because we're moving away from this good and bad. And that's what the mind believes in, the the sort of dualism of good and bad. And instead, we're resting in this space, which is always here and now. And in this space, things come and go and are being known. And some of that stuff that comes and goes is greediness or aversion, right? There's something like a sensation. That's something that arose and then passes away. And then because it's an unpleasant sensation, there's anger or aversion to it or fear. And that also just arises and can be known and goes away. Maybe more anger comes and that's known and then it goes away. But with enough confidence, the mind can realize that all this is happening here and now, this unentangled knowing, this non this reality really of non attachment, the space of wisdom, the space of the heart and mind. And the interesting thing about that space is the knowing is there effortlessly, without anybody needing to do the knowing or anybody there generating the awareness. Because when you look in that space, you don't find the person who is somehow being aware or generating the awareness or doing the awareness, you never find that operation or that person. Right? So there's that space and it's there's awareness in that space. And then the most profound thing, profound in, the, in that it's so transforming, it changes who we are, is it eventually dawns in the mind, generally, gradually, that that space is empty. That there's nothing else there but the knowing. And the interesting thing about that space, it's both empty, but the more that the mind, the wisdom of the mind knows to trust the space of the present moment and recognize its empty nature, something else then is recognized, which in later traditions Buddhist traditions was called like responsivity or you could say engagement or in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition they sometimes call it unstoppable compassionate action. But actually that's a little limited because it's not just compassionate but it's, it is the unbound activity of life flowing through this particular mind and body so what we call my personality. But now it's arising in that space of non-attachment, non-greed, non-aversion, non-distraction or non-delusion. <laughs> so it's like, you know, if you want a highfalutin phrase, you'd call it enlightened action, right? A more down-to-earth phrase would be, it's skillful action, skillful participation in the moment. Because it's not arising out of greed, anger, and delusion, it's arising out of the absence of greed, anger, and delusion operating in the mind. Because the mind is in that place, in that wise space of not 
being confused by any anger or greed or any unwholesome quality that arises, the mind is just aware, well, that's just something being known here and now in this empty space of the present moment. So in a way, that wisdom, that intuition that this space is empty of self, empty of self-centeredness, then it diffuses greed, anger, and delusion. Greed, anger, and delusion can't get a footing in that mind in those moments. So that participation, the way the personality, the body and mind participates, then is what this mind and body and its participation looks like when the mind isn't under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion. And we've all bumped into moments that were at least in this direction where our participation for moments at a time felt really light and free, absence of having some sort of strategic goal, like trying to make something happen, trying to be seen in a particular way. I mean, let alone the more obvious you know, ways of exploiting or manipulating or hating or hurting others. But even the subtle neediness and subtle grumpy aversiveness that we usually are operating with. There are moments, right, in your life where you felt pretty clean, pretty free of that. And then the aftertaste of those moments is something like, well, wow. Sometimes it happens when we're playing, you know. We're just playing, maybe with a kid, or if you give yourself enough permission, you can even play with adults. And there's just some... And you might think it was about being in that particular place, splashing in the water with your good friend, you know, on some lake somewhere. But it wasn't ever about the place. It was about the mind. Or really, it was about what wasn't there in that moment. Right? Attachment to greed, anger, and delusion. It was the absence of the mind wrongly identifying with greed, anger, and delusion. Because of the absence of identification, greed, anger, and delusion, even though it may have a lot of momentum in our minds, it couldn't find a footing. So then, whatever the mind did in those moments was the activity of non-greed, non-anger. What you could call, what we call love, right? Love, or compassion, or joy, or gratitude, or... You know, just um, qualities of mind that aren't sticky at all. That don't leave a heavy (coughs) or sticky residue in the mind. It leaves a very clean, light flavor in the mind. So that the aftertaste is like, oh, that felt really right. That felt really good. Right? And the reverberations around us. Like when we're around people who are in that space, the effect on us is also positive. So it's like a gift to be in that space or to be around other people in that space for moments at a time. Maybe, maybe, who knows, there are wise, enlightened beings who are always in that space or almost always in that space. But we know that there's movement in this direction, right? Because we know there are people who are rarely in that space, right? And they suffer a lot. And there are periods in our life where we are those people who are rarely in that space, right? Where it was really dark and heavy 
And you know what it's like when we're really a difficult place? Weirdly, we want other people to be in that place too. That's a telltale sign we're in a bad space. When we catch ourselves wanting other people to be suffering because we're suffering. I, I catch this. I, I mean, in subtle ways. I'm, you know, I don't want to over-dramatize this, but you know, I'll catch myself not often, but uh, it's not. You know, it's frequent enough that it's shocking. You know, we'll all be in a bad space. Not a terribly bad space, but just suffering, just feeling burdened. And I'll notice that my way of being with my partner is like, you know, like almost like we want to drag them down into the muck. You don't have rights to happiness when I'm feeling like this. You lose your rights to happiness. And it's just very interesting about how we relate to the very real suffering, the very real injustice and oppression all around us. And, and what is our relationship to freedom? Like sometimes we can have this overlay that a suspicion of freedom, suspicion of lightness, suspicion of joy and love, like it doesn't belong in this kind of world. And so that's why we need to do our own research. We basically can't trust any sort of religious, spiritual beliefs. We have to check it out for ourselves to see what's available, what's possible. Because otherwise, we're more dependent on like being right than discovering what's possible. So the, I'll just leave it here and then open it up for discussion. So the encouragement is to get interested in this space that's always here and now, the space of the present moment or space of the heart, and to recognize whatever that space is, there's awareness everywhere in that space. That We can't actually tease out the sense of the space of the present moment from this activity we call awareness or knowing, right? So that's, that's an interesting place. And the more you can intuit that as you go through your day, as you're doing your sitting practice, that space of awareness, that space of the present moment, that space of the heart, that knows, then you'll, you'll recognize the unentangled knowing, the reality of non-attachment in that space. right? And you learn to trust that, the absence of greed, anger, delusion. So everything belongs, everything is allowed in, everything can be known without being governed by the habits of greed, anger, and delusion. So all of this is like powerful insight. I mean, it really changes how we understand the mind. Every little step along the way as we develop this habit, this wholesome habit. And then the last piece is that sense of responsivity, like that 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 understanding of that deeper understanding of the nature of the mind, that it's empty of self, empty of any center, any permanent core, that there's awareness effortlessly there, and then there's nothing repressive or suppressive about this way of being. 
meaning the heart, the personality, the body-mind, it's liberated in how it participates in the world. It isn't about, there's nothing that holds it back. In a funny way, we become more of who we are. Right? We laugh better. We smile better. We cry better. We do everything human beings do with less friction, less restriction. The personality becomes more alive and in a way more wild. The only thing that goes away is greed, anger, and delusion in the activity of life. It's not like we become sort of like I'm a Buddhist, so you know I don't care about anything. I mean, who would sign up for that? <laughs> like, I mean, it's sort of the shadow and, and kind of funny when you say it out loud like, Oh yeah, I'm a Buddhist, I practice a lot, and I'm hoping someday not to feel, not to see, not to touch. Basically not to be a human being, and that's called enlightenment, you know? No, it's just the opposite, really. But the initial stage, it really helps to have some quiet, less seductive, less intense space to begin to recognize the subtle truth of the mind, which is, there is awareness, there is a space of the mind or heart. Space is an imperfect world by the word, by the way, so don't get hung up about the words here. You'll, you'll see, you'll un- intuit it. The more you play with it, the more you investigate your own mind. And this space of awareness is disen- can be free of entanglement. can just let stuff come and go and be known. And the more that habit is developed, the more you realize that that awareness, that wise way of being, doesn't suppress responsivity. And that's why we take our practice on the road. You know, we sit for an hour in the morning or 30 minutes in the morning, and then we take it on the road (laughs) into our relationships, into our responsibilities out there in this world that needs engagement, needs our participation. So I'll leave it here. We have a few minutes We don't have the young children coming in this morning, so we have about six minutes. It would be nice to hear from a few of you your own thoughts about what I've said tonight or questions or this morning. Questions? What comes to mind? Yeah, please. Say your name if you don't mind. Uh, Name's Andy. Um, I notice that when I'm trying to do, you know, mindfulness, my mind is immediately going anywhere other than here. Like it's going to the future, the past or other places that are, you know, and so, um, but when I, the little, little bits of time where I am here and present and free of those things, it's really good. So I wonder what, um, like how I got to here where I'm, you know, I assume I'm, I somehow rewarded myself for this, like, distracted way of thinking about life or just like not being present. So like, was there some time in the past where like, where, you know, in a more sort of, I don't know, innocent or unentangled place. And then like, did my mind get tangled up by what? Uh, That's one of my questions and I'm trying to untangle it. Um, But like what rewarded the distraction versus because uh, there is reward in finding the uh, being present, but mm-hmm. for whatever reason, like the distraction has been more rewarding <laughs> yeah. up to this point. 
The, the Buddha is great because you know, a lot of times when people would ask questions, he would tell them the question they should have asked. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of the question like, how did it get set in motion? The more relevant, interesting question is, how does that, what is in motion, cease? Right? So like you were talking about how the mind basically is seduced by the intensity of chasing its likes and dislikes. The different objects and the pleasantness and unpleasantness of the dif- different objects that are being known, and the mind gets entangled with the liking of the, the pleasant ones and the, unli- the not liking of the unpleasant ones and the ignoring of all the neutral experiences, right? And so the Buddha might say something, well, that's been going on for a long, long time, and to try to even conceive of how it got set in motion, would, if, first of all, isn't helpful and will drive you crazy. But the right question is, is how does it end, right? And the first way that supports the ending is you couldn't have said what you just shared with us without already there being some wisdom of, of the exhaustion, the frustration of the mind being sort of led around in that way. Whenever there's something pleasant, it gets involved in the liking and proliferating around the liking. Whenever there's something scary or unpleasant, the mind can't help itself but get involved and proliferate around that. What's the other option? Right? That's the relevant question. What's the other option? Well, like the instruction to realize that that liking and not liking is being known. right? And that, that knowing, that space of knowing, that space of wisdom can be a kind of refuge for the mind. Like, Energetically, there's a sense of trusting that, relaxing, keeping it in mind, not forgetting that space of wisdom that knows, okay, honey, it's like this now. There's a lot of liking. There's a strong impulse to get entangled. Nope, I'm actually entangled. been proliferating for 10 minutes about this. I've got this moment of just seeing it, and it feels like this. It's just this. Can this be okay? Instead of trying to stop it, because stopping it, you're still in that activity. There's no way to resolve the activity in the activity. That's the basic lesson. There's only one way to resolve, and this is the move that is always missed. So remember this piece. It's the curiosity that allows the mind to move in the direction of non-entanglement. Well, what is this? Pure curiosity, not curiosity in order to make it stop, but curiosity because the mind humbly recognizes its ignorance and it wants to know. That's the one intention that doesn't lead to ongoing proliferation. I just want to know. I just want to see more clearly. just want to better understand. There's something deeply grounding and settled about that intention, as opposed to the intention, I want us, I want my mind to stop doing this because it isn't helping. Right? It's, well, that intention is going to arise, but then wisdom can step in. Okay, the first step is to realize you've had a go at this for a long time and it doesn't go away. So let's just step back and get interested in what the heck's going on here. Let's be a little bit more humble and quiet, and just let everything happen. So that's that disentangled knowing. 
Like I can't really, I, I can't learn by squashing it with repressive, like stop, you know, because I have to see it. Ignorance has to play itself out. Greed, anger, delusion has to be given permission so it can be seen as being empty of self. That's the trick. That's the part that's really hard to do is to let things come and go. So Buddhism is this, or this practice the Buddha points to is this place between any kind of habit that's about control or repressing or suppressing or getting it right and giving up. So it's not about giving up and it's not about once and for all figuring it out and doing it right. It's really this place of humility and realizing that this is the most powerful thing, this space of wise presence. The wisdom comes because initially all the wisdom is is knowing that I don't know. But that's a lot of wisdom, knowing that all of my inclinations are not to be trusted except this inclination, right? To rest in awareness, to be aware. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it has to be quick. Why don't we go over here? I haven't heard your voice before. What's your name? My name is Beth. And I was struck when you said that we tend to want to share our unhappiness when we're unhappy. For me, certainly that's a a challenge. But there's also the challenge that I'm not allowed to be happy when people around me are unhappy. And I used to labor sit. And sitting with women in labor, it was easier for me to be very present and very joyful and not participate and help her not participate in the suffering. But I live with someone with a chronic illness that just goes on and on and on. And it's much harder for me to be centered and joyful and not attached to his suffering. And one of the great privileges of being around people who have chronic illness or who are dying in the dying process or activists who are engaged in some of these deep and intractable problems like racism or uh, just economic um, oppression, is how do we keep showing up without the heart being dragged down by the enormity of the suffering? And that's the place, that's where emptiness comes in. Because emptiness knows how to be present with everything that's moving, including our heart's habits of reacting or being afraid of the suffering or chronically, neurotically needing to control, fix their suffering. So your suffering is bothering me, so I'm going to really work hard to make your suffering go away. But that's also suffering, to not being, not liking their suffering, not being able to be intimate with their suffering. And that's the real the deeper practice is that's where we find it. When we can be around somebody dying or ourselves dying, involved in some of these places where there's a lot of injustice, where we really see it, we see, start to see the roots of it, we see how unfair it is. And it really hurts. And all kinds of things start to move in our heart. But the mind doesn't have to be oppressed by everything that's moving. And that's the, see, that's the difference. It's like we're finding this place of non-entanglement. But we're actually more sensitive. We're feeling 
but we're not, there's no grip to what's being felt, no holding it. So it keeps moving. And that's the thing about when we're close to suffering, you can experiment with letting the feeling, the intensity of whatever your heart's feeling, letting it move. This is really at the heart of grieving. Those of you who have lost close people, you know this. At some point, you're not afraid to feel the enormity of the pain of loss. Loss hurts, right? That's just in the nature of loss. It hurts. But what we do with that unpleasant feeling of loss has everything to do with where we are in the grieving process. The earlier stages, we are in denial. We don't want to turn. We can't turn. We don't know how to be close to the pain of loss. In the later stages of grieving, we've normalized the intensity of that feeling of loss. And it actually turns out to be enlivening not to have to run from that pain of loss. And that's true with all the places that we need to be close to suffering. Yeah, we need to leave it here. Thanks, Beth we bring that up. Let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths. Being at ease right in the middle of everything. Nice to be together this morning. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.